I'm Amy Hall, and you're listening to the hashtag SDR Ask podcast from Stand to Reason, Hi, featuring Greg Kokel. <laughs> okay, Greg, in the last episode, we were mm. talking about the law and the gospel and the Christian's relationship to the law. And as it happens, I don't know how this keeps happening. The very next set of questions actually has a question about the law. And this is, I think people get confused sometimes when we talk about the Christian's relationship to the law because uh, they think we're saying, by the way, this is exactly what uh, Paul addresses in Romans. They think they're saying, oh, the law is bad then? No, no, no. <laughs> Paul says the law is not bad. The law is good. And he goes so specifically through how we are to view the law in Romans. So I recommend that to everybody. But here's a question from Josh Carey that has to do with this. How would you answer someone who says that Jesus's fulfillment of the law means that there are no rules Christians have to follow other than loving God and loving others? Well, that's antinomianism, okay? That means that um, there is no law, antinomos, okay? Like deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, second law, antinomos, no law, okay? And um, it's clear that this isn't true because the New Testament, which talks about Jesus fulfilling the law, is thick with moral imperatives that we are to live by. We are to be holy as God is holy, and without holiness, no one will see God. Those are in the New Testament. Um, Peter says, make your election more sure by adding these qualities of virtue. That's uh, I think that's First Peter chapter 1. Um, we also see a, a similar kind of list in Romans 5, where because we are justified by grace, you know, we rejoice, and then we rejoice also in our tribulation, because tribulation produces all these things, and these things produce other things. These are all virtuous things that are supposed to be produced in our life, and we participate in that. Titus chapter 3 has a very powerful statement about the grace of God. I, I love this passage because I think it it puts everything in its perfect balance, okay? And what Paul writes to Titus is he says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not according to deeds which are done in righteousness, but by the washing, uh, let's see, I probably should look it up because I'm going by memory a little bit here, but, but generally, by the washing and regeneration of our spirit, I'm, I'm, no, I'm just going to go there. Sorry, because it's such a powerful passage to make the point. So let me just find it. Sorry, I didn't kind of look at this. That's the way my mind works. Here it is, Titus 3. Okay, here it is. When the kindness of God, this verse 4 through 7, the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So he's disqualifying that, the law but according to his mercy. In other words, the means by which we are justified by God is not the law. That's his point. But according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration renewing by the Holy Spirit, rebirth, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, there it is again. He says the same thing multiple times. We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace full stop. Next verse. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently 
so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Good deeds are not profitable for justification. Our deeds, uh, uh, they don't acquit us, they condemn us, okay? The deeds follow justification as appropriate acts of virtue that are characteristic of our new birth and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And since the law is good, the law characterizes things that are good, and we can use the law as a kind of guide for our behavior. But as Paul says in Galatians 5, um, all these sinful things are contrary to law. He's got this list of But those who are led by the Spirit, who are walking in the Spirit, uh, they're not under the law. Why? Because you're already fulfilling the law by the Spirit's power. You are doing the things that the Spirit of the law, which is summed up in love God and love men, and uh, and therefore, by contrast to the deeds of the flesh, walking in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, is the way Paul puts it in Romans 8, then we are going to manifest those fruits of the Spirit that are there in Galatians. Yes, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. Uh, actually, start in Romans 6 and read through Romans 8. Because what you find is that Paul's talking about how when they were joined to the law, the law had no power to help them to put their sin to death. And then he says, what happened is we have now died and we've been joined to Christ. We've died with him. We've risen with him and we've died to the law. Just like if you die, you're released from the law that was over you. And so what happened is uh, now we're joined to Christ. And he says, so that you can bear fruit. That's the result of this. And then in chapter 7 and 8, he talks about how um, when you're under the law, you he says, you know, uh, you there are two options here. <laughs> With your mind, you see that the law is good and your body, you're under the law of sin, which is in the members of your body. And then he says, but now we're we're under the law of Christ. In other words, we are joined to Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. Now we can put our sin to death. So all this has been going towards putting your sin to death and bearing fruit for God. That's really clear in those chapters. So he says the law is not, it's not, it's not that we are nullifying the law. We're actually establishing the goodness of it because we don't have to, we don't have to hide laws or get rid of laws to make ourselves better. Mm-hmm. We can we can uphold all of that, the goodness of it, even if we're not under it in terms of it ruling over us and judging us. Right, right. So, so we come to this question here that there are no rules Christians have to follow. And that all that is just to give us kind of a background of our relationship to the law. But what he says here is that there are no rules Christians have to follow other than loving God and loving others. But the question is, how do we know what love is? Right. What is love? What does that look like? And so I went through and I found some verses that actually address how we know what love is. And this is the first one. And considering what Paul has said so far in Romans, we have that whole background of not being under the law. But here's what he says in Romans 13, 8 through 10. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, 
It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Mm -hmm. Now, notice he's not saying, and this is how a lot of people in our culture take this. He's not saying that now we love because that's better than all of these rules. All the rules. We don't have the rules. We just are smiling lice and say, have a nice day. Yeah. What he's saying is. Do what you want. The rules are defining what love is for you. This is why you don't commit adultery, because this is how you express love. Now, I found a, a couple. By the way, it's interesting. He, he starts with a sexual sin where he said, don't do this oh, sexual yeah. sin because that's not an example of love. Okay. I yeah. mean, there are more sexual sins that he talks about in the New Testament that are problematic, 1 Corinthians 9. But I, since sexual sin is a big part of our culture's expression of love, cultural idea of love, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's interesting. Love is love. Remember, yeah. love is love after all. So why are you getting down on homosexuality? So I have a couple more verses. This one is Second John 5 and 6. And here's what he says. Now, I asked you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay, so he's talking about loving one another. He's not talking about loving God here. It's loving one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Mm. So what it, love is walking according to God's commandments as to how we will treat each other. Regarding each other, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And Excellent. then First uh, John 5, 2 by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So again, he's putting it in terms of loving the other people when we follow God's commandments. You know, I'll tell you what this uh, kind of confirms in me, fortunately, and that is how biblically illiterate so many Christians are. And... um I think the daily bread is great because I like those people and they handle verses great. Okay, but if this is your diet, all you're getting is a crust each morning if you read it in the morning. It's a good crust, but it's just a crust. If you are not reading through your Bible, especially the New Testament here regarding these things, to get the full counsel of God, you're going to have all kinds of inadequate understandings. You've read all these passages. There's this claim, okay, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. I read that in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, no more rules. Well, wait a minute. Keep reading. There are all these rules. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's all these rules about fasting and about tithing to show off to other people. Those are rules. And uh, these are commandments that apply to us that you've read in these passages here. How is it that people miss this? And I think the way they miss it is they don't read it. I mean, that would be my my guess because it's so it's right there. And um, anyway, it, it's it's a frustration to me because many of these things are. And I'm not trying to put anybody down here, but I I am troubled. And um, a lot of these questions that we answer, um, and are, are are questions that a more thorough reading of scripture would uh, supply an answer. Um, and it's not because we have this esoteric understanding of theology and philosophy and apologetics. There's obviously some issues like that. But sometimes it's just keep reading. Just keep reading. Understand, look, look, at, um, look up the word law in the New Testament. Find every verse in the New Testament that talks about law. Then gather these together and then 
read them. This will give you a balanced understanding about how this is is used. And this is what you've been doing, is just reading some other passages. Mm-hmm. How can somebody say, say that there's no rules when the text says, keep the commandments? This is how you love. Keep the commandments over and over and over again. The same kind of thing in the New Testament, even given the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Yeah, there's just so much confusion about our relationship to the law because yes, we we are we've died to the law, we've been released from the law, but we are supposed to become like Christ. We're supposed to reflect God to the world. And how do we know who God is? Well, this is when we're instructed by the law. So we can find out what God loves and who he is and his character from the law. And that's how we know how to act. Now that we still get our power from the Holy Spirit because we are not under condemnation of the law, but the law is still good Mm -hmm. and we still learn from it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where people get confused. But I do have a post called The Law is Good if people are mm-hmm. want to look into that. And I have some other links to That's how great. we should look at the law. There's also a book that we've referred to in the past, and I have it sitting next to my to my reading chair in my office. Uh, but it's something about uh, 20 questions Four, or 40 it might questions, be 40 about, questions about the law. Is it by Hamilton? I, I don't know. The, it, I can't even remember the title, much less the, but but I know it's sitting there, and we've made reference before. Maybe you can find it and include it in your notes. Well, I, I notes. think that was by James Hamilton, if I remember right, like be. 40 questions about the law yeah. or something and like that. Yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'm close. It, maybe I've given you enough clues that you, <laughs> people can find it. All right, Greg, let's uh, stay in the Old Testament here for... Um, Josh's question. Okay. And he asks, is it often ref or it is often referenced that there are multiple fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. However, no one seems to explain the details. Can you please lay out what they are and how we know for sure they were fulfilled? Also, shouldn't legitimate prophecy be very specific versus generalized? Well, this is a hard question. And um I have a, a hermeneutics book. <laughs> If you ever write a book, don't write a book with a title that's hard to remember because it's hard to recommend it. But this is a good one. And I think it's Principles of Biblical Interpretation. And who's the guy at Denver Seminary? Um, the theologian. Okay, well, he is. <laughs> there's like three authors to it. And this, I think, is an excellent book. But it's a textbook. We recommend uh, uh, Fian Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that's a great, popular book. This is a textbook. And this is going to help you with these more challenging kinds of interpretive issues. And um, the the answer is that it's not easy to determine what is actually prophetic and what isn't. Sometimes we know because New Testament writers, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, identified certain passages as being fulfilled in the life of Christ. But you go back to the passage and you wonder, how did they get this out of this? I don't know. And uh, sometimes it's because the Jews understood this historically through time to be a reference to the Messiah. Now, sometimes the passage is actually identified as Messiah, anointed one, Psalm 2, for example. They take counsel about the Lord and against the Lord and his anointed. And that anointed could mean an anointed king, but Messiah means anointed one, and so sometimes it's got this longer-range reference. And the Jews were familiar with this, and this is why they identified certain passages, even prior to Christ, as messianic passages. There were messianic psalms, there were messianic passages, etc. 
Uh, I don't know the process they went through to understand that. And uh, I, you know, maybe that process is some of it is lost on us because these things happen in ancient ages where people understood the language better and they understood the circumstances and they understood this is a reference to something more. Sometimes look at the, the virgin shall give birth. Well, that's that word uh, virgin in Isaiah 7 actually means maiden or young woman. Um, well, how do you get, and it, and it seems to be referencing something in the immediate context, but there are clues that it's referring to something further distant as well. And when the Greek New Testament was translated, I should say when the Hebrew was translated into Greek, called the Septuagint prior to the time of Christ, this passage was translated as Parthenos, which is I think that was the word, but the word means virgin. Was it Parthenos? I can't, don't quote me on the Greek word, but the word in the Greek means virgin and nothing else. So Mm -hmm. even before Christ, they understood this to be a reference to a virgin birth. That's why it's in the Septuagint that way. So um, there's a lot of different references. Sometimes you have Something like, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So the prophecy was fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Well, I, wait a minute. I don't see that. Well, that's a typological pro. That's a, that's a typology where the Jews were in Egypt, then they come out, and then Jesus, as an infant, goes to Egypt, and then he is brought back to Israel. And so um, probably what the reference there is the typology. So the, the Messianic prophecy is a strange thing, and there's a lot of different variations to it. Uh, I heard Stephen Meyer, <laughs> Mr. Intelligent Design, do a wonderful talk on this 30 years ago, you know, when I had him come to Hope Chapel and, and give a presentation as part of the Master Series of Christian Thought. And he pulled this all together. And actually, I was just recently talking to him, and apparently he's still working on this. So somebody might keep an eye open for Stephen Meyer talking about prophetic fulfillment, because he had a nice way of kind of bringing all these little bits and pieces together and explaining how that worked. But I can't remember exactly what he said. But I will tell you my practical um, adjustment to the ambiguities of Messianic prophecy. I try to cite the Messianic prophecies that seem to be very, very clear in their reference to a future Messiah, or at least the New Testament authors thought that. Isaiah 53 is probably mm-hmm. one of the most obvious. And uh, I've never done this, but somebody said, you can just present this passage to Jews and have them read it and ask them, who is this talking about? And they're going to say Jesus, because so much there is seems to be clear. Psalm, uh, is it uh, 22, that begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That whole psalm reads kind of like a uh, a crucifixion which didn't happen until hundreds of years later as a form of capital punishment. But it's like a first-person account of what's going on in a crucifixion from the perspective of the one being crucified. And that's where he, the, the psalmist talks about they're wagging their heads and they're saying things they, as they walk by. They cast lots for my garments, and they divide them, and all these things that happened to Jesus when he was on the cross, according to the historical record. So... Um, there are some passages that seem to be straight ahead, very clearly messianic prophecies that uh, can be offered 
um, as prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus, even even the place of Jesus' birth. When Herod asked, what does the prophecy say? Where was he? They go to um, the Bethlehem passage mm-hmm. to to verify that fact. So I think there are enough prophecies that seem to be pretty straightforward. Daniel 9 has more, the 70 weeks prophecy, um, that that I think are pretty reliable in common understanding when you explain them to point to Jesus as the Messiah without having to go to these other references that seem ambiguous and you don't see how they tie in. I think that would be the way to go. So that's the way I deal with Messianic prophecy. Do you have any thoughts on it? Because he actually doesn't specify Messianic. Do you have any thoughts on any other prophecies that... Well, characteristically, prophecies are precise in order that it can be known that they're fulfilled. And this is true about most of the prophecies that I'm aware of in the Old Testament. The ones that seem to be fall in this other category are ones that are referenced in the New Testament as having been fulfilled in Christ. And then you look back in the Old Testament and you read it in its context and you say, well, I'm reading this and it, I'm not getting that this is supposed to be um, applied to Christ. So I just read mm-hmm. Book of Acts chapter 2, and they cite the passage where, let his house be desolate and another man take his place. Okay, so they see that as as a reference to the circumstances they're facing. Judas defected, so they got to find Matthias, I think, or Matthias, or whatever his name is. You know, he's easily forgettable because he's the second string, right? So, uh, uh, and he takes his place. But you look at that, you say, where did they get that? I don't know. Okay. But uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they made this utterance, they Mm -hmm. draw this conclusion. So, uh, you know, Greg, you mentioned reading Isaiah 53 to a Jewish person. And I immediately thought of Shane Rosenthal, who used to work for the White Horse Inn, and now he has his own podcast called The Humble Skeptic. And he read Isaiah 53 before he was a believer, and it it impacted him. Oh, no kidding. Uh, And he actually recommended just recently in the last few days, a book called The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, Studies and Expositions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Oh, excellent, excellent. So if somebody's, that's, it looked, I I took a look at it earlier, and it looked a little bit academic. So if you're up for that, try that book. Yeah, but that's what's necessary with this kind of question. Yes. That's precisely yeah. what's necessary. Yeah. And um, also, Greg, I did look up the other book, the 40 Questions book, and I was wrong. It was Thomas Schreiner is the author. So oh. it's 40 Questions About Christians and the Biblical Law by Schreiner. Yeah, there Thomas you go. Schreiner. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I see the cover here. And now the one on biblical interpretation... Hmm. I still, I still, <laughs> this is the problem with bad titles, you know, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, whatever. Well, if we think of it, maybe in the next episode, we'll let you all know what Greg was thinking of. He, you've probably mentioned it before on the show, other show also. I have, and it's the, I can see it sitting right in my <laughs> bookshelf, but I can't see the whole title. And who is it? I'm I, thinking from Denver Seminary, one of the... Uh, he also wrote a, uh, a book about the the Gospel of John, the historical reliability of the Gospel of John. Anyway, he is one of the three authors that. Uh, uh, I'm 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 expecting I'll get a, a text tonight at some point. Yeah, <laughs> at three, at three in the morning. <laughs> I'll wake up, but there it will be. 
Well, thank you all so much uh, for listening and thanks for sending in your questions. Make sure if you have a question, you send it to us on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or you can send it through our website at str.org. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 